Hi, this is Lindsay Miller, and you're listening to the Arkansas Times Week Interview Podcast on Friday, November 9th. On this week's episode, we're going to talk election results, including Republicans' continued ballot dominance in Arkansas. Oh, woe is me. Ballot issues and the runoff for Little Rock Mayor. And then maybe we'll, if we have time, we'll hit on some, some big other news items of the week. So, uh, oh, and I should mention that we are once again sponsored by the Jim Daly Fitness and Aquatic Center. I've been there this week several times. The People's Gym. The People's Gym. So, as predicted, Arkansans voted to increase, uh, no, sorry, let me start, pull back, that Arkansas, of course, remains a dead red Republican state. Yeah, I mean, top to bottom, every single state uh, office holder was reelected, or a fresh Republican was put there. Asa Hutchinson won re-election as governor with what he said, and I have no reason to doubt him, was a record gubernatorial vote, 65%. Uh, <clears throat> there was no change in the legislative uh, lineups. They did knock off two uh, Republican legislators, Democrats in northwest Arkansas did, but in return, uh, Republicans knocked off a couple of Democrats. So it was a, a dead heat in the House and no change in the Senate. So uh, it's uh, no no sign of a blue wave at the Arkansas level. And all four uh, incumbent Republican congressmen were reelected. And by big margins in three of the four cases, French Hill only had a six-point win over Clark Tucker. Tucker, of course, was was the great Democratic hope. He uh, ran strong. He had a lot of money. He ran a, a positive campaign, and he got killed in the outlying counties. Well, and the sad thing there was is there were some factors. You know, there was a bad poll in that race that said he was 12 points down. I think that didn't help the enthusiasm gap much, but uh, he ended up losing by six. But that wasn't that was about where Pat Hayes was four years ago, I think. He won Pulaski County by 27,000 votes, uh, and despite some feeling that he might had not established himself well with black voters who are traditionally Democratic, he swept black precincts with 90% margins. Uh, But he was beaten by 45,000 votes in the outlining counties, and, you know, at the end of the campaign, I, I just said here to somebody else that, all of the effort that Clark Tucker made going to White County, going to Faulkner County, going to Saline County, thinking that there was perhaps this suburban voter who's been turned off by Trump who could be reachable by a moderate Democratic candidate, it just wasn't there. It just didn't happen. He was just trounced in those counties. By Saline was the worst, but it was terrible in White, and it was bad in Faulkner, too. And he didn't even run, I don't think, as well in Faulkner as uh, Maureen Skinner did in challenging Jason Rapert for a Senate seat. And so I, I, I don't know what the, the message is there uh, of the hope of doing something in the 2nd District, but if Clark Tucker can't get it done, it's hard to know who can. And in the state legislature, uh, you had a, a number of, of really strong candidates. Uh, there were just – I, I, I don't want to slight anybody not mentioning them all, but there was just an uncommon group of good – and I, I want to say young, and I don't want to sound like an ageist, but I am 68, so I can be ageist. Uh, young people, fresh ideas, had campaigns, got organized, got out there, met people, knocked on doors, had positions, had had strong things to say that were at variance with the Republican incumbents. I, I think of uh, Jess Mallet out in West Little Rock, Jonathan Crossley in Jacksonville, Monica Ball in Maumelle, uh Chance uh, Mangiani in North Little Rock, 
Then, then there were 10 candidates in Northwest Arkansas that were of this same ilk. And they all lost. I mean, Denise Garner, one exception in Fayetteville. And um, a woman whose name escapes me in Springdale, uh, Morledge, I think. But in Pulaski County, uh, they all made good efforts, but they ran 45 to 47%, and that's good, but close doesn't count, you know? All right, well, uh, let's leave it there. So boo-hoo. Yeah, and pause for a second. And now uh, let's talk about our sponsor, Jim Daly Fitness and Aquatic Center. It's good. I like to walk a, walk a mile or so to warm up on the track, and it's got a, got a nice cushion on it, and then I use, yeah. use the weight machines. And you can watch what's going on in the gym while you're walking on the track. No, and there's, you know, there's sometimes there's a Zumba class, and sometimes there's this weird sort of boot camp class where they roll big tires around and stuff, and so it's good. You there's, don't do the boot camp class? No, no, I'm well, I'm well past that. But I get all the new weight machines, and, and there's a room full of uh, – Oh, treadmills and various other, you know, spinning machines and what have you. I've been a member uh, a number of years in the past, but uh, now I'm more sporadic. I like that you can go just on a whim, and it's like five or six bucks, I think, for for uh, a yeah, a day a day pass is only about five dollars, I think, isn't it? Yeah, so, so it's, it's it's a good deal. And there's a, a pool, there's a year round pool, and the outdoor pool is great in the summer. It's uh, frequently uh, a real oasis in the summer, but of course, no good for you right now. But it's there's a little bit of everything, and they have odd things. They have a there's a occasional ping pong tournament they have down there, and they had a wrestling thing. Well, it's just a lot of a lot of interesting stuff going on. Yeah, and the pool in the morning, at least, you often can get a lane. It's a good way to start your day. Yeah, when I go in the morning, there's I, there's almost never a double up in the lanes. Yeah. All right, check it out. Jim Daly Fitness and Aquatic Center uh, right by War Memorial Stadium. As predicted, Arkansas voters uh, voted to increase the minimum wage, put the voter ID law in the state constitution. Also, an amendment to allow casinos. It passed with about 54% of the vote. It was beaten in some counties, but uh, passed in others. Uh, First of all, minimum wage. uh, Interesting, somebody made the point that relative to our our income level in Arkansas and our cost of living, we're going to have a luxurious minimum wage in a couple of years, 70% of the median income, some conservative economists that up at UCA said. So they think this will set up a test of whether minimum wage is a bad thing for the economy. Will it force small businesses to lay people off or something like that? I don't know, but, but uh, it's good news. I mean, it was a populist thing, and the uh, message of the Chamber of Commerce and propagated by people like the Arkansas Democrat Gazette editorial page didn't dissuade people from voting to increase the minimum wage. Of course, in Arkansas, the single biggest employer in Arkansas, Walmart, already pays $11 an hour as a minimum wage. So, But there's still, they say, 300,000 people that are going to get more money thanks to minimum wage increase. Voter ID law passed overwhelmingly. It's just a lost cause. It's a bad law, and it's going to mean some people's vote won't count. There were 1,000 people who had to cast provisional ballots in Pulaski County this week because of the voter ID law. And, you know, whether those votes get counted or not, I don't know. It doesn't matter this year because there's nothing that close on the ballot. But... But it's a shame. But in any event, that happened. But casinos is interesting. Uh, the, the the immediate inf- effect over the next year to year and a half 
will be a drop in gambling tax revenue for the state because it lowers the gambling rate on the existing casinos at Oaklawn and Southland. And new casinos won't be online, at least one of them, until early 2020. I talked to John Barry, the chair of the Quapaw Tribe, which was one of the major backers of the amendment. And it'll be a competitive process. It, it's not a given that they will have the casino permit, but they will apply, and they're going to be ahead of the game because they've got an option on land in Pine Bluff. They've been making friends with people in Pine Bluff, working with the Pine Bluff Forward Group, working with the mayor. I mean, they got a plan, and their hope is to have a permit by the end of April, start building in June, and by the first quarter of 2020, be open with a casino and restaurant in Pine Bluff. The hotel may take a little longer to finish, he said. But Pope County is going to be a more interesting thing. That is a place where the Cherokee were expected to apply, and they put money in the casino campaign too. But that county voted against the casino amendment, and they also voted strongly in favor of an ordinance that said there needs to be a local option election before the mayor or county judge can approve a casino. In, in that county. Now, the amendment says all you need is the approval of a county judge if it's in the county or a mayor if it's in the city. I, I think there's a legal argument that that local ordinance is unconstitutional, that they can't add a new restriction by local ordinance on the Constitution. But as John Barry was telling me when I talked to him this week, it's a bad situation in Polk County currently. I mean, it's, you know, you don't want to go into a place that you're not wanted, even if you can. And do you really want to do it by filing a lawsuit to do it? So Pope County may be farther down the line, but uh, they're they're blowing and going in Pine Bluff. And what about Oaklawn and Southland uh, changing over? Well, to- I, I think uh, there's an interesting question of whether this amendment is self-executing as to... Uh, the fact that they can now no longer have to be electronic casinos. They can have real dice games, real roulette wheels, real cards. They can uh, they can have sports betting. And I, 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 I've seen some interviews. I haven't talked to either place, and they say, well, they're moving as quickly as possible. Does that mean they're going to have to have enabling legislation in the legislature in January? Or might they start? Southland sounds like they're ready to do the switch over just almost any moment now, and they're the really the big operator. But uh, pretty soon, I, I would it, it won't within two or three months. There's going to be sports books going in both places, and reg and the and the galloping dominoes will be galloping across the green felt. And what will the revenue hit uh, mean for the state? Well, they're saying they're estimating $40 million less, and that's a, that's a chunk, particularly for the governor wanting to cut income taxes some more next year. Now, one thing that the advocates have said is, well, you're not taking into account increasing revenue from these new enhanced gambling options. John Barry, the Quapaw tribe, said that, that sports books are not that big a profit center. The margin is not as good as the slots, but, but, but there'll still be margin, so there'll be money there. Uh, okay, let's move on to the Little Rock Mayor's race where Frank Scott and Baker Curris are in a runoff. Scott got 37% of the vote, narrowly missing the 40% yeah, he came required. with 3% of winning it outright, which was, that surprised me. And Baker Curris edged out uh, Warwick Saban with 29%. 
of the vote to, yeah, to Saban's 28. About 600, about 600 votes kept Warwick Saban out of the race. Well, it was... Vincent Tolliver and Gunn Swartz got a, a pretty similar margin of 1,700 votes or so. Yeah, and, I mean, they if Tolliver and Schwartz hadn't been in the race, uh, you know, might have been won outright by Frank Scott. Uh, well, there was, there was a clear geographic divide in the voting. Uh, Frank Scott, although he... He had some votes in all parts of town. Uh, he heavily carried the, he's an African-American, and he heavily carried the black precincts, although I thought it was interesting to note that Warwick Saban and Baker Curris also had some measurable support in those neighborhoods in some all-black precincts where Clark Tucker, for example, as a Democrat, got 92% of the vote. Frank Scott got in the 70s. I mean, you know, an overwhelming victory, but, you know, you lose 30% of the vote, that's 30% of the vote. Uh, Frank Scott got 20% of the vote at the Heights Fire Station, which is the richest, whitest precinct in town, but he's viewed as in a favorable light by a lot of people in the business community as a banker and a former member of the Highway Commission. Baker Curris did real well in western Little Rock. That's, that's where he lives, but... He kind of got identified as the Republican in the race. I mean, he's not exactly, but he had worked for Wynn Rockefeller at one time. And so he, he enjoyed supporting West Little Rock Warwick. Saban carried Hillcrest, which he represented as a state representative in some of the heights. And so I guess the big question seems to be is where will Warwick Saban's votes go? And uh, so far, and, you know, I don't know how well endorsements work if – so far, he hasn't said. He's just said nice things about both candidates and gave a very gracious uh, defeat speech and hadn't said whether he's going to endorse. And I just, I just don't know. I mean, there's some thought by age alone that somehow Frank Scott inherits the change agent mantle of a young person, which is kind of ironic because, I mean. To my way of thinking, he looks a lot like an establishment candidate to me. I mean, he works for a big bank, and he backs the Highway Commission's plan for tearing up downtown Little Rock. And, I mean, he doesn't sound like a particular change agent to me in that regard, whereas Baker Curris, I think, although, you know, he, he hadn't out there on some of the issues like I-30 either, is, is somebody who I, I think really has the ability to come in and through his budget acumen and having been an administrator of a government that was as big as the Little Rock City government, that is the Little Rock School District, I mean, he can come in and do some tough stuff at City Hall that's long overdue. I think he could impose some discipline there that's badly needed. I think maybe the, the change uh, for Scott is that uh, the, the sense of him being a change agent it has to do with race you know people who well, think that the racial divide is the most pressing problem certainly that he's he's well positioned to address that and as you've noted he you know came out very forcefully in the wake of the radley balco washington post stories uh curris, yeah, he called for a justice department investigation yeah, curris was kind of nowhere to be found on that and and then just the, the notion that there's half the city that's that's been um you know, kind of ignored, gotten the short shrift for a long time, and and you know that he he is conversant in in the kind of corporate world in West Little Rock, and is not going to ignore them. He's not going to be the black mayor, but he might be more 
right a tune no i i think what, what what he tries very hard to offer is that he will not be the black mayor but he'll certainly have an awareness and a sensitivity to that that is better than anybody who's gone before him i, I you know i race is gonna be it may not be addressed directly it probably won't be but it's gonna play a huge role in this campaign and for bad reasons as well as good i mean i i think I think there will be people who will vote against Frank Scott because he is black, not necessarily because they are individually racist, although in some cases that will be true, but for the symbolism of of having a black mayor. I mean, that, that, that would say to a lot of people it's a majority black city. Yeah, I mean, I think that was, there was a lot of sort of, you know, armchair predictions that Frank's not going to win because he's black, work's not going to win because he's Jewish or short or, you know, just ridiculous kind of stuff. Although ridiculous as applied on a blanket level, but not ridiculous at all on some individual voters, I can assure assure you. Or curse is not going to win because he's old. You know, I I think all those things come into play. But again, I mean, Scott got 37% of the vote. He very nearly won it. Um the conventionalism also is that it's harder to get African-American voters out in a runoff. Um, but I mean, he did better in, in the first midterm. election than than customarily. I think he has some really energized voters, and I do think that's going to be important. I, I, I would say at this moment, uh, although I think Baker can raise more money probably, he, he did in the first election, that, that I'd have to say Frank's, it's Frank Scott's to win, I mean, at this at, or to lose. I mean, I think he's. you'd have to call him the favorite. So the election's December 4th. Will there be a debate, you think, again? Surely they'll, surely they'll get together at least once somewhere. I mean, as Warwick pointed out in a, what I thought was a very gracious farewell note, he can't remember an election where the candidates all – were exposed so often and in, in such depth to so many voters. I mean, there was a public forum, it seemed like, every other day, but at least one a week, I think. Yeah, I mean, and unlike I, a lot I, of races, they were very eager to participate. They too. were eager to participate. They took every question. They answered them all. I didn't see anybody dodging anything. It was, I mean, it was really kind of a remarkable thing. And, and I want to say, while I've emphasized race a lot, I do want to emphasize that there was a clear evidence in this race that there were votes cast absolutely irrespective of race. I mean, there were white voters in significant numbers that voted for Frank Scott, and there were black voters in significant numbers that voted for white candidates. And that's good. That That's a good thing. Sure. Yeah. All right. Before we sign off, let's, let's talk about one uh, potentially big piece of news this week, and that was a lawsuit filed in Pulaski Circuit Court challenging the State Department of Transportation's plans to widen Interstate 30 to 10 lanes or more. <laughs> yeah, you know, this is, I knew this was coming. And, and I, on the one hand, it's just, it's just real simple. There was a constitutional amendment passed to support a, a highway building program, and it pledged sales tax revenue to these bonds. And throughout the amendment, it talks repeatedly about how this money is to be used only for a four-lane highway program. I mean, the idea being in a lot of cases to take four-lane highways to parts of the states that only have two-lane highways. Well, clearly, 
Interstate 30 is already a six-lane highway, and they're going to make it a 10-lane or wider highway. And so the suit says very simply that the Constitutional Amendment means what it says. It's only to be used for four-lane highways. Now, I mean, I think the obvious response is going to be something to the effect of, oh, come on, you know what that means. It means four lanes or more. They don't mean to say only. But there, there is this thing of, of legal construction that says the words mean what they say. And, and particularly when voters are voting on a ballot title on a constitutional amendment that just keeps saying four lane, four lane, four lane, four lane. It doesn't say ten lane. It doesn't say eight lane. It says four lane. Right. And so, I mean, on the one hand, I'm certainly sympathetic to the common sense argument. Is all I know what they meant, but the words say what they say. So we'll say. If nothing else, it slows things down a bit. I think it provides another window into the I-630 widening project, too, which that case is not yet totally dead, although the injunction was denied. So, And and I think it's also worth noting that these lawsuits come from a sector that is also targeting the 30 project on a bigger scale and that there's likely yet to be a lawsuit to come the challenge even if even if this lawsuit fails there's more to come in challenging that project for a lack of sufficient environmental review yeah which is what held up the 630 uh, originally right, right. Wilbur Mills I mean there, there there's some significant resistance to the to the highway department yeah all right, let's leave it there and move on to endorsements. What do you got this week? Well, just in time for you know, I hate to endorse this because it's not readily available unless maybe you could call up down there and, and lobby them to do it again. But just in time for cold weather, Boulevard made cassoulet, mm. duck confit, their own house made Toulouse sausage, uh, pork belly, croutons, big beans, garlicky beans. Uh, it's rib it's, sticking. Yeah, uh, it's crazy rib sticking. I, even I couldn't eat it all in the portion. And the one thing that's great about the you know, Boulevard will make makes these dinners at night that you can pick up and take home. And this, this one is particularly well suited to it. Some of them are not so much. But this is one that you take it home, put it in the oven for 15 minutes just to warm up and it doesn't mess it up. It's right. perfectly perfectly uh, suited for that use and I can't think of a better cold weather thing than cassoulet. But you can also just go buy some of their Toulouse sausage, which is fabulous, and cook some of that just on your grill. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I uh, somehow have not delved deeply into the 70s funk band Funkadelic, despite oh. being a huge soul funk fan and, uh, you know, listening to Parliament quite a bit back in the day. But I have just started listening closely, and especially some of the early records like uh, Maggot Brain and... Um, Standing on the verge of getting it on, when Eddie Hazel, the just fantastic guitar player, was with the band and doing these really long, sort of stony solos. Ooh, it's good. Um, so go check out Funkadelic uh, well, if, if it's been a minute. I'll, I'll, I'll put that on my list. <laughs> Did you listen to Funkadelic back in the day? Uh, no. Really? Did no. there two out there for you? I, I think they were past my. I mean, anything past 1969 is kind of... Well, this I think Maggotbrink came out in 1970. Well, that's just about when I was... 71. Yeah, that was, that was sort of the end of my musical growth period. I mean, it's just like sort of black psychedelic yeah, rock yeah. and roll. It's oh, great. I probably would have liked it all right. I mean, I was just strong R&B, old school, you know. Yeah. Jerry Butler, Temptations, Four Tops, Showman, you know, sure. whatever. Sure. 
All right, we're going to leave it there. Uh, subscribe via iTunes or Spotify or your favorite other podcasting service. Give us a rating and review. It helps people find us. And check out our other podcasts at arctimes.com slash podcasts. Hey, and if you're looking for something to do on Sunday, come out to Whitewater Tavern. Oh, we're, yeah. We're yeah. going to have a great uh, fundraiser for the Arkansas Nonprofit News Network, Stephanie Smittle of the Arkansas Times and, and one of the most diverse uh, vocalists in town and an excellent vocalist in town. And then Isaac Alexander, who's a, uh, a local pop uh, music savant is uh, there. There are our lineup, so check it out. It's this early show, and you bring your kids. Starts at uh, doors open at six. Music at seven. Donations at the door. And, and get on down to Jim Daly Fitness Center and join me on the weight machines, pumping some iron. Yeah. See ya. <laughs>